Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Stephen Charlotte, founder and CEO of Soapelt, an innovative AI-powered concept that could potentially revolutionize primary care as we know it. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Charlotte. Thank you for joining us. Before we begin, would you mind talking a bit about your background? Because it's quite extraordinary as a physician entrepreneur, the success that you've achieved over these past few decades. <laughs> Try us. Well said. That's uh, quite a bit. And for those who are interested, I would encourage you to look his story up because it is quite impressive. But we're here to talk about Soap Health. So, Dr. Charlotte, can you give us the elevator pitch about Soap Health? What is it and why is it so remarkable?
That's a very interesting point. As it, well, let's let's visualize this because I think it's important for the listening audience to get a sense of how the workflow would entail during the patient journey. So let's open up a visual. This is the SOAP AI-powered primary care physician. Would you mind talking through this visual? So what you see in the first screen is Genie, our digital human, and the second uh, digital human. Genie conducts a detailed, again, voice-based interview, which means she speaks to the patient. The patient can speak back to her. The patient doesn't want to speak back. The patient can select intuitive imagery, as you see appears on the screen. Or the patient and Genie can neither speak, and they can both uh, interact with the application as if it's a regular this application is available on any web-enabled device. You can start it on a desktop and finish it on a laptop. Then we built the world's most comprehensive risk assessment, about 500 algorithms based on hereditary lifestyle, social determinants, mental health, preventive measure utilization, sexually transmitted diseases, fall risk, osteoporosis risk, etc. Then we include a differential diagnosis tool that we combine with our detailed history, and we feed that into some large language models and generate diagnosis uh, superior to most doctors' abilities to generate diagnosis. And finally, we present the data to the doctor in an easy-to-read format. We have two other modules we're working on um, that I'm not comfortable disclosing right now, but when all is said and done within six months, we believe we will have completed an AI-powered primary care physician equal to an average primary care. I know many of the physicians who are listening are probably scratching their heads as to how this can be done, and many of the patients that are on the fences saying, I want this or stay away. Let's uh, parse through the various emotions, and I use that word intentionally, that are going through people's minds as they encounter soap health. The first is the concept of truthfulness. You had mentioned earlier that at times patients may not be fully honest, but through this model, there's a certain honesty gradient that would be higher, if not equivalent, when using this methodology compared to a traditional patient-physician encounter. Can you expand a bit more on that? Sure. So, for example, we have a case study of an 18-year-old Hispanic woman walking into a clinic complaining about a headache on and off for several days, some anxiety, etc. Uh, this is what she told the nurse who did the initial triage. She repeated the story to the doctor based on the intake. The doctor was going to refer her to a neurologist. Unbeknownst to the doctor, she had been interviewed by Jeannie as part of a study shortly before seeing the doctor. To Jeannie, she disclosed that she thought the cause of the headache was the fact that she was being sexually abused. So she completely did not share that with the doctor and nurse because she was embarrassed. But with the digital human, she fully disclosed. And once that information was shared to the doctor, the referral to neurology was canceled and instead she was referred to it. So just one example of by a patient being more truthful, personal in sharing what's really going on, the doctor was able to adjust the care, the referral. 
And that's fascinating. I, I have to press that point a bit more because I think it's such a critical point to discuss in detail. Is it the nature of the questions asked? Is it the manner in which they're asked? Or how the visual appears to the patient? Or all of the above, really. What leads to that truthfulness that may be missing in a live patient encounter? So a study actually did a very good job of explaining it. This study showed a digital human on two computer screens. The patient the users, human users, were told that in one screen, the digital human was controlled by a human. In the other screen, the digital human was controlled by the computer. So there was no variable between the two screens. Nevertheless, when they interacted, there was a uh, test of their brains, and it was shown that the brain pattern was completely different when interacting with a digital human than when interacting with a human. When humans interact with humans, they want to manage their reputations, they want to make a good impression, and they definitely do not want to be adversely judged. When they interact with a digital human, none of those fears fears are involved, and so they are much more highly likely to be more truthful in responding, and again, more verbose. A study showed that if you count the number of words spoken to a digital human and to a human, they will speak more words to a digital human. In fact, in a 2013 study done at the University of Southern California's Institute of Creative Technologies, it was demonstrated that a digital human was better able to diagnose PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, than trained therapists because the soldiers returning from battle were more comfortable and let their guard down when dealing with the digital therapists. In another study done in 2013 at Stanford's Prevention Research Center to improve Hispanic elderly patients' exercise patterns, it was a successful study, and the professor, Abby King, who did that study when I took her class at Stanford, uh, told me that people became emotionally attached as a digital human and wanted to maintain the relationship post-study. There's another gentleman, Tim Bickmore at Northeastern, who's done a number of studies. And he has demonstrated that a digital human can collect a better family medical history than a patient self-completing a digital health form or even speaking to the gold standard, a genetic counselor who's taking a family history. The digital human was a superior interviewer. That's very fascinating. I also find it interesting how you talk about the negative aspects of an interpersonal relationship, whether that's an initial form of communication or an ongoing relationship where there are certain judgments or stereotypes that are done. But to play devil's advocate, if you are communicating with somebody and you want to elicit humor or comfort, you do want to create that relatability. You had mentioned your model elicits humor or can often make the patient laugh. Can you talk a little bit about how that's done? Yeah, so I actually coined the phrase, described that I call it medutainment for medical entertainment. So it's it's kind of subtle humor. So Jeannie will say, how old you are? How old are you? And you'll say, I'm 37. And she'll say, wow, you don't look a day over 34. Or she'll say, 
Tell me your height, not the height you tell everybody, but your actual height. So it's that type of subtle humor that can put people at ease. The flip side of that is when Jeannie asks a question like, have you lost anybody to cancer in your family? And the user says, unfortunately, Jeannie understands that unfortunately means yes. And Jeannie can respond with, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Or when Jeannie says, how are you doing? And the response from the user is, I'm doing well, how about yourself? Jeannie recognizes that she's been asked a question in return and will respond with, I'm good, thanks for asking. So it's the nature of the conversational generative AI plus the hard coding of certain responses in certain circumstances. In other words, we can anticipate that a question that asks, have you lost anybody in your family to cancer, is either going to have a unfortunate yes response or a thank God, no response, pick up on that and respond with the appropriate sentence. Let's let's pick up on that word. So you use the word unfortunately, and I think that's a critical word because it could be used in dramatically different context depending on when and how it appears. Unfortunately, when about to elicit some personal news could mean yes. Unfortunately, when trying to tell somebody something they don't want to hear can elicit a no. Do you have the contextual awareness where you know when the yeses should be the yeses and the no should be the noes? Please explain that. You know, the system, you know, the, the dialogue, The more I speak to you, the more questions that pop in my mind, and it's just incredible. I promise we're going to move on to other aspects of the platform, but I want to touch on one more component with the actual dialogue component. Uh, linguists will often explain language having a prescriptive model and a descriptive model, meaning that as language changes over time, as slang changes over time, some of the phrases in the context they use can change. Is there a learning component to this or an adaptability that's maybe time sensitive, culturally sensitive, that can recognize how language in a 13-year-old may be different than a 73-year-old? So, interesting enough,
Well, let's move on to the next component of the platform, which is the risk assessment. When you say risk in medicine, you have so many different things in this day and age that entails legal liability, regulatory risk, and clinical risk, of course, includes the risk of error, as you alluded to earlier in our conversation with your family story and your own personal story. Talk to us about how risk is assessed and all the granular components of risk. Let's talk about why risk is important.
two components. One, every physician thinks differently, and at times when an exhaustive list is provided, there will be a selection bias where certain diagnoses will be the default diagnoses, or there could be a potential overabundance of decisions leading to a certain paralysis. Uh, these types of cognitive heuristics, if you will, uh, have they been accounted for and have you seen them in the trials? So, Well said. Let's transition to perhaps a few broad questions, because I think it's important for the listening audience to get a sense of what your general perceptions are about AI and its role in medicine moving forward. AI has become this polarizing instrument where very few truly understand it, but everybody seems to have opinion about it. So before we talk more grandiose concepts, if somebody were to ask you, what is AI's role in healthcare? At a very simple level, how would you answer? That's a great question. And I'll tell you why, because I often say that it seems like AI is the tail that's wagging the dog. People are really enamored by the problem itself. You really need to understand a problem if you're going to increase the probability of finding an adequate solution. And that solution might be AI or it might not be AI. For example, to operate at, at that location, we need conversational AI. However, to generate the risk assessment, we don't use AI. Is AI today, it's a very high level. So it has a role to play. I was asked a question yesterday in a CEO roundtable what do I think about the power of AI? And I said, that's a great question, which I asked somebody not that long ago. And they said to me, you today cannot combine AI with quantum. Not to say that in the future, there won't be an ability to combine 
quantum computing and AI. But it is frightening to think about when it does exist, what that will mean. Let me add a point. There's a book by a guy named Harari called Sapiens. And he said the greatest discovery in the history of humankind was the discovery of ignorance. In other words, humans coming to the understanding that they knew very little understand what the capability of AI is yet. And to give you a couple of examples, the CEO of Google was on 60 Minutes sometime last year. And he said that they fed several sentences of Bangladesh into their AI system and it learned the entire Bangladesh language. And Google now believed that it could basically become a master. He added something very interesting. He said, we don't even know how it did it. So that's one perspective of AI, this understanding of the black box. He also shared something that's kind of near and dear to me. Since I was a young boy, I played a lot of chess. I was captain of my high school team in chess. And the Google CEO said that they let their AI system play millions of simulated chess games to ultimately discover a new strategy for winning at chess that had never been deployed. That got me thinking, we don't even know about space travel. We don't know, but an AI system could teach us in a hurry. So maybe some of the stuff like warp drive and using a transporter to move molecules from one space to another is the science fiction of the 1960s, but it may be the reality yet of the 21st century based on some very clear use cases. We're using it in certain aspects of our AI-powered primary care physician, but only because we have carefully studied every aspect of what a physician does, what they do exceptionally well, where we should simulate where they have vulnerabilities and the shortcomings of being human, where an AI system could be superior and supplant that. For example, I often say to physicians, if I put you in a room with a laptop or a pad of paper, and I said to you, take all the time you need and write down as many diagnoses as you can think of. They've said to me, well, I definitely can come up with several hundred. Maybe I can even break a thousand. Yeah, yeah, I think I could break a thousand. And I say, okay, so what do you think about the fact that there are 28,000 diagnoses? And they say, whoa, exactly. There's no way for the human brain to even imagine or consider or uh, hypothesize about tens of thousands of diagnoses, many of which the average physician has never encountered, may never encounter, or may only encounter once. And for that patient, it's gonna be unfortunate that the human doesn't know that diagnosis. But in AI system, it would be child's play to think about every possible diagnosis every single time and similar to the chess analogy, in the early AI-powered chess systems, the chess system could draw 
a chess master in game one and then easily beat the chess master in game two because the chess master was mentally exhausted and the AI system was not. Today, the AI systems are ranked at 4,000. The top chess masters are ranked at 2,400. So similarly, in the short term, AI is going to give physicians a run for their money from an intellectual capacity. Again, we're not looking to remove physicians because there's a common quip out there that AI is not going to replace physicians, but physicians who use AI are going to be replaced by physicians who, I'm sorry, physicians who don't use AI are going to be replaced by physicians who do. Yeah. I think at some point the AI is going to be vastly superior to humans and how humans use it is left to be seen. But if you're a Trekkie like I am and you remember the second installment of Star Trek with, you know, Captain Luke Picard, the doctor was a counselor. She was no longer a doctor in the traditional sense. She was more of a empathetic, uh, almost psychologist or mental health person because the AI took care of all the medical care. And interesting yeah. enough, in today's science fiction, virtually every single science fiction writer imagines that the, a the doctor of tomorrow will be an AI except for one show, show on the sci-fi channel called The Ark, and they had a human doctor who unfortunately got hooked on pain medications, and it took her three episodes to get unhooked or withdraw off the pain medications. So maybe they kept her human so they could have a subplot of her being hooked on it, but every other science fiction writer today imagines that AI is going to be the physician in your life. Well said. Let me transition now. So Dr. William Osler, uh, the progenitor of American medicine, often used the analogy of medicine as an art and science, and innumerable number of quotations and quips, as he was quite witty himself, in showing medicine to be a balance. I think in recent years, particularly during the COVID pandemic, we've seen a rise in populism and anti-scientific sentiment. For example, vaccine hesitancy or conflating risk of vaccines or the lack of benefit when it comes to masks. These are not truly scientific issues, but they permeate into the scientific world. How does AI account for some of these, I don't want to use the word irrational, but I can't really find a better word or at least a better context of the use of the word when trying to identify how AI can assume some accountability with these irrational human aspects.
Wow. That's very powerful. Now let's transition to the third phase and talk about how we met. And that was with your recently awarded grant. Congratulations. Please tell the audience a bit more about that. And you're asking looking for pilot sites and various academic medical facilities or large-scale primary care facilities that may serve as great onboarding sites for soap health.
So I hope that this pilot then can give people an opportunity to see just how important and impressive this platform is. So for those physicians or administrators who may be listening and would like to pilot this, how can they get a hold of you and what can they do to begin the onboarding process? Wow. Well said. And on that note, Dr. Charles, thank you so much for your time. And I would encourage everybody who's listening, please learn more about Soap Health. Please take the time to consider it for your practice. And please recognize the value that Dr. Charles is providing. So thank you.